The Barbie movie smashed box office records and ignited a firestorm on the right. We'll do our best to dissect the politics of the movie. Then the date is set for Trump's trial over his misuse of classified documents. We'll discuss what the timing means for his future. Then we'll dive into the GOP primary. Who qualified for the debates? Whose campaign is up? Whose is down? Then we'll turn our attention to the world of country music, where a debate is brewing over what small towns really want. A perfect majority 54 discussion. Finally, a Democrat and a Republican did something together that we thought was pretty cool and made us feel good, which is why we thought it'd be fun to end the show with it this week. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason. I take it you didn't see Barbie. We haven't talked about this yet. I actually do want to see it. I have not had a chance because um, you have met my children. I have two of them. <laughs> and I don't do and any anytime I go do anything, you know about it. Because I'm very excited about it for months. And uh, so since I hadn't mentioned it, you know I haven't seen it. I haven't what had about a you? I would have thought you might have seen it. I know. I'm planning to do it. I was in LA uh, for work and then I was too busy with playing 10 hours of tennis with our mutual friend Sujit to get out there and, and see this our movie. Lives but are we are so alike. So yeah, like Robbie, it was hot. It was hot out here too to be playing tennis. For for the audio listeners, this is Brett Micellis. I'm one of the co-founders of Midas Touch, joining the majority 54 guys today. I guess I'll be the resident Barbie expert. Yes, I need uh, you today because I'm, I guess, the only one out of the three of us who who saw the film. Um, but I got to yeah, say, do I your Ben you, Shapiro I, impression. Give us, give us your uh, review. Uh, okay. So I think it was, it was very woke and, uh, we had a lot of woke things going on and I, I bought a hundred dollars worth of Barbies and I threw them all out <laughs> because the patriarchy, it's just so ridiculous. Uh, it's not bad. That's not bad. Hey, can I just, hold on. I just like to comment. The speed was perfect. Uh, That's your the, impression. The key is the speed. The key is you want to speak as if you're on fast forward mode because yeah. the one comment just, I always like see on one, Ben Shapiro. You're like one toke of helium away from having it. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, anyway, you know, ahead. next time I'll, I'll I'll break out the balloon next time. But I think you two are in me po quite possibly the only two people in America who did not see the Barbie movie and it was crazy, uh, this so. weekend because uh, even when I was there, so I did the Barbenheimer weekend. I, I did Oppenheimer one day and then I did <clears> Barbie <throat> the next day. Um, both times I went into the theater, it was absolutely packed like packed as if it were like the before times it felt like pre-covid <laughs> times and it was, honestly just that kind of element of community and that element of seeing people out enjoying themselves you know you had like 70 percent of the people in the movie theater all decked out in pink from head to toe it, it, it felt like a moment in like the cultural zeitgeist which we've kind of been missing from society in the past few years. And I think it's something that extends beyond politics. But of course, as with anything, uh, they got to uh, jam the politics into it, no matter what it is. And to be fair, it is a movie with a lot of political undertones and overtones and, and messages. It's, it's, it was actually a pretty uh, deep movie at the end of the day. It's like it's so satirical, right? Yes, satirical, very self-reflexive. It's funny. The, the, one of the jokes that I've been seeing like throughout TikTok and all these apps are people going, you know, I'm paraphrasing, something to the effect of, this weekend I saw a movie about the existential crisis of life and the, uh, you know, and, and then I saw Oppenheimer. <laughs> you know, it's that's like the, the setup for like every joke on, online. But but it was deep, you know, it, it was self-reflexive. It was slapstick. It was satirical. It was it was, you know, very well written. It, it certainly had a, a pointed message. It knew what it was. And for a movie that's about, let's face it, a, a commercialized product of plastic uh, dolls, uh, you know, it, 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 it had a lot of layers to it. And it, and it did uh, a really good and effective job, I think at conveying the message. I think Greta Gerwig did an incredible job. I, I, I would say like, I remember when I saw the trailer for the first time, I was like, Oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a good movie. <laughs> this yeah. is, like they, they, they're actually not messing around with this, but like the production design I thought was incredible. I thought the writing was incredibly strong. Uh, you know, the cast is great. I think, uh, Margot Robbie, I think was incredible. And I know she was a producer also behind the scenes who put the whole thing together. Um, we had, uh, Ryan Gosling really committed to the bit, like, like <laughs> 150%. And I thought he was just absolutely fantastic. Michael Sarah played like the awkward, uh, you know, uh, Alan character, Michael Sarah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, from, I, I, I thought it was really fun. You know, I, I, if, if this were a movie review show, which it is not, uh, I'd, I'd probably give it a solid B. 
um, which still may uh, upset some people. But uh, Oppenheimer was just such an A plus. Oppenheimer is such a masterpiece. Well, Brett, somebody who did not enjoy this film was uh, your cousin Ben Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, what, what, what did Ben say here? I, I need, I need a... <laughs> let's play. Let's play this. It's not much different, actually. Audio listeners might not know the difference. Let's go to this first, first, first Ben, ben Shapiro clip. Get ready, everybody. Hold on to your seats. Well, folks, I just got back from the theaters seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm about to review both of them. I'm gonna tell you which one of these is the best blockbuster of 2023 and which one is maybe the worst. I bet he loved our movie, right, Ken? For those of you who can't wait that long, I'm gonna give my review of the Barbie movie in the most Oppenheimer fashion. What the f Run. So uh, for audio listeners, Ben Shapiro is lighting Barbie dolls on fire right now. So the things I do for my audience, my producers dragged me to go see Barbie movie, Barbie the movie. And, um, and um, I, have, I have thoughts. This video is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Let me begin with my generalized assessment of the movie. This movie is not just a piece of shit. This movie is a flaming piece of dog shit piled atop an entire dumpster on fire, piled atop a landfill filled with dog shit. It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. On every possible level, it is a horrific movie. The only thing that can be said for this film is production design. So, okay, first of all, that's a freebie to ExpressVPN. We should send them in. Yeah, it's apparently the one thing that we and Ben agree on is ExpressVPN. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know if they're paying us anymore. I don't know if we agree if they're not paying us again. Um, Yeah, no, I I still use it. I'll be real. I still use it. (laughs) I use it to get around the MLB blackout rules, but anyway. Yeah, and, and just so the listeners are clear, that was not me doing an impression of Ben Shapiro. Yeah. That was actually Ben Shapiro. One of the hilarious things from that clip, you know, he 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 goes at the end, he goes, my producers dragged me to see this, and so I had to see it. Like, okay. And if you notice in the clip, he's literally dressed as Ken from the movie. Like, there is a scene from the movie where oh, head is to that toe, what it is? Ben Shapiro went to the movie dressed as Ken. I don't know if this was What's by funny design. is if it's unintentional would yeah, be the best. Is that, what that, yeah. is that what the jean jacket is? I thought the that jean jacket the, was a joke. The je- uh, the I don't know about the jean jacket. Did he play multiple oh, Kens that's in just, the movie? I don't know. That's, no, maybe that's okay. just a jacket Ben Shapiro wears. Nice jacket, the, I, Ben. This may be a poor taste, a joke. But, based, but based on his sort of volume and intonation of his voice, it seems like he might have more in common with Ken than just the outfit. Oh, I'll wow. just leave it. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, frankly, you know, it's it's not hard to see why Ben Shapiro, you know, would be upset over this because it kind of takes aim at his whole entire attitude about gender norms and and yeah. culture. Um, but let's face it, Ben Shapiro was not going to enter this movie with an open mind. Ben Shapiro saw that movie specifically so that he could then go and record a 42-minute uh, think piece, <laughs> if you want to call it, on his thing, which is like half the length of the Barbie movie, to be clear. Like, he did a very long review, um, you know, and when they do all this, it's, it's their way to me, and I'm, I'm curious curious to get your thoughts but it seems like such an obvious ploy to me there it doesn't matter what the movie is about whatsoever they know that they could attach themselves to this cultural phenomenon you could get the headline where he goes ben shapiro destroys barbie i don't know if you destroyed it the movie made more money than god in the theaters so i it's 200 million in five days if that's wow. destruction oh, really? and and, yeah. and and internationally, I think over three fifty. So and like forget it's, what you think the Barbie you gotta think about how this like the amount of merchandise they've sold around this too. Like it's crazy. Um uh, it's a cultural phenomenon and one of the interests yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the interesting statistics also over it, and I don't have the map to pull up right now, but there were maps that were going around that were showing which movies were more popular in which states. And I found it incredibly interesting uh, because it kind of oddly looked like an electoral map. Really? But- but to the surprise of, uh, maybe not to the surprise of us, the red states in the country 
were more inclined to watch and enjoy Barbie, while the blue states were more inclined to go see Oppenheimer over the weekend. And so for all this campaigns, all these campaigns by the right, by the Ben Shapiro's, by these MAGA influencers to quote unquote destroy Barbie, at the end of the day, Barbie actually ended up succeeding, obviously, with flying colors. And not only that, specifically in the red states, it did even better, uh, you know, than it did even in the blue states, which I think is pretty amazing. Hmm. Can I ask you a question that has nothing to do with any of this? How did the Barbie and Oppenheimer double feature become a thing? Because that's just the most genius marketing thing I've seen in like forever. Like, how did they do that? It's really, it really is genius. I, I don't know how it came to be, but one of the things that I appreciated that the producers and the filmmakers did around it was they could have easily made it a competition, you know, and they could have went yeah. after each other, but they really went all in on Barbenheimer weekend. You got to see both. You got to see both. And that was very unusual. I know like a week before or so, uh, the Mission Impossible movie came out. And so I know they didn't want to release Oppenheimer on, on that weekend, especially because Christopher Nolan That's shot this movie in IMAX and uh, the IMAX theaters were reserved for Mission Impossible. And when Oppenheimer came out, uh, it, Christopher Nolan actually took over all the IMAX theaters. And apparently the Tom Cruise camp and the Mission Impossible people were not too pleased mm. that he only had about a week um in the imax theaters um but i think they just went all in they were smart about it they kind of joined forces for the promotion and i think it was like the one of the first weekends in like an incredibly long time where one movie made over a hundred million and the other movie made over 50 million in the same weekend so both movies overperformed uh you know both did great um both are really well reviewed and uh, despite ben shapiro's attempts at destruction uh they remain unscathed it's like Terminator 2 well, and Point Break, Jason, when those two yeah. came out in the same weekend. <laughs> well, uh, I bet, I bet you're going to see more, more movies pull this move. Uh, so I'm shocked that Ben didn't like it. I mean... Well, <laughs> I, I do, because I'm a masochist here, let's, let's do at least one more piece of this Shapiro thing. Like, Let's get to the substance of this. He seemed to take issue with the notion of the patriarchy or the depiction of the patriarchy in this movie. Let's go to this clip. You have Helen Mirren saying, because Barbie can be anything, women can be anything. At least that's what the Barbies think. See, in the real world, women can't be anything. And that's one of the messages of the film. In the real world, men run pretty much everything, which is weird. Who greenlit this piece of shit? I mean, Greta Gerwig is a lady. She's making a good living off of this. Margot Robbie is playing the lead. In fact, the entire cast, aside from basically Ryan Gosling, is women. So um, it seems like women are doing okay. But again, put aside the meta logic of it. Okay, can I, before we even go into it, this is, this is one of my favorite of their moves, right? It's like, because these three individuals making a point have money, none of the, and success and opportunity, none of the people who they're making the point on nice. behalf of can possibly struggle. Because Colin Kaepernick seems to get three square meals a day and, and is not starving to death, there's no such thing as police brutality or systemic racism, right? I mean, it's just like such a tired move, but it usually does work, I guess, with a certain part of the population. It's amazing. I just wanted to point and, that out. Well, yeah, such a good point. In case it's worth pointing out, like even the the executive team of Mattel is basically all male. Uh, of the Fortune 500 companies, only 52 CEOs are women. You can go to the U.S. Senate. Ooh, you can go. To I the have US a statistic. Congress. I I have a statistic about that that Diana taught me just the other day, which is that there are actually, if you combine the amount of Fortune 500 CEOs named Michael and the amount of Fortune 500 <laughs> CEOs named Tom, that are in, uh, uh, Fortune 500 CEOs. If you combine the Michaels and the Toms, who are Fortune 500 CEOs, it is actually, I believe, a number greater than the overall amount of women who are CEOs in the Fortune 500. So I think there's more that's Michaels and Toms. Anyway. That's absolutely bonkers. But, but Jason, Jason, Greta Gerwig is, seems pretty successful, so all the other problems seem to just go away, right? Greta Gerwig. I, I mean, ult ultimately... Point. 
ultimately he obviously misses the point. He intentionally misses the point. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's a movie that does hold up a mirror to society, but it also holds up a mirror to itself. Like one of the things that I really liked about it was that it was incredibly self-reflexive, like to your point, Ravi, uh, the fact that Mattel has like almost all male uh, CEOs, they had a Mattel boardroom, not to give away, you know, anything important. The Mattel boardroom in the Barbie movie was all men. And that was part hmm. of the joke as well. And they constantly ripped into Mattel, who was a producer on the movie. And they ripped into Mattel's many missteps with Barbie. They ripped into uh, Barbie's effect on the psyche of women and girls. And and I thought it was interesting how they were able to take a movie about this property and they were able to get this script approved basically by the studios and Mattel that honestly was as much of a criticism of them and of itself as it was of broader society. And I thought that was just uh, an interesting element that was kind of brought into all this. There's, you know, there was this, uh, there was a separate controversy here, just worth mentioning. Ted Cruz pointed out that uh, there was this map in the movie, apparently, that showed uh, the so-called nine dash line, which indicates Chinese ownership of an oceanic territory that's disputed under international law that the Vietnamese uh, are unhappy about. Uh, I challenge our audience to go down the rabbit hole on the internet on this one. I actually think there's something to this particular part of the controversy, but I don't, I don't think it's worthy of, of, of airtime, but, but it is weird and it's worth checking out. Um, yeah. The map also looks like it was drawn by a three-year-old. Yeah. Um, like it literally, like, like also like Africa is like extremely close to the United States and the United States looks like a football, like, like nothing is, it, it's not quite an accurate map. And uh, I think even there, there were like eight dashes and not even nine dashes on the part he was talking about. But it's just, you know, it's, they, they were going to try to pick this thing apart. They wanted it to be another thing where they go, oh, look. Go woke, go broke. Right. You know what they say. Go woke, but it, it didn't quite uh, hit that way. But I think it speaks to a, a broader kind of uh, sense, to me at least, uh, about how kind of out of touch uh, these politicians can be with just people at large. Like one of the cool things to me about going to see this movie, I, I wasn't going with politics on my mind. I was excited to go to a movie, be uh, you know a part of something in the cultural zeitgeist and to see you know, hundreds and hundreds of people at the theater, like I was saying earlier, to see everybody excited, you know, wearing the pink clothes or or there were even people dressed up for Oppenheimer, like in right. specific, like it was just a, a cool vibe. And I think people just really want to be able to live their lives and not constantly be a football in this culture war game that Ben Shapiro and Ted Cruz and, and all these people try to rope them into. Yeah, I think it's funny. You know what's it funny reminds that? Oh, Jason, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, what's funny about that is like the main criticism, and this may be what you're going to say, of the left by the right so often is that we're just too sensitive and we ruin everything fun. Right. And it just feels like that's what they're doing. People seem to be having fun with this and they're like ruining it. Well, yeah. Uh, think about the Yellowstone, for example, is a TV show that it's like the most popular TV show in the country. Now, Kevin Costner is the star of Yellowstone. He's a longtime Democratic donor, right? Uh, the show is very unkind to liberals. Like, it's unquestionably, it's all about essentially Californians moving to Montana and ruining the place. And it caricatures liberals for sure. I still watch the show. I don't, I don't whine about it. It's a, it's a bit of a caricature, but it's an entertaining show. And I think it's one of those things that the more you... With exceptions, like Bud Light in certain areas where they've been emboldened on the right, with with those kinds of exceptions, by and large, the more you whine about something, and, and we'll we'll learn more about this as we get later on, we start talking about country music, but the more you complain about stuff, the more you kind of embolden people and alienate your audience. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. Like he all but predicted that this would have a strong weekend, but then fizzle out. I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know, man. Hmm. It's a bad prediction. No, I mean, like, it's not going to, I mean, people like me, like, I'm still going to see it at some yeah. point, you know? Um, yeah. So. Well, okay. Well, let's talk about Trump here. Uh, and, and Brett, I'd love to keep you on for this just to get your opinion about this. But they just set a, they set a trial date for May of 2024. And I, you know, Jason, you, you know how this stuff works. 
my sense is if they set a trial date that is for the doc, classified documents case in May of 2024, maybe this thing doesn't even happen during the election season, given that that's the starting point. I don't know. I mean, there would have to, in this case, I think there would have to be, do you mean like it'll be over by then? Or do you mean like it'll get continued no, meaning and continued? Like until it, it continued. Yeah. I mean, I was just reading about this law, the Classified Information Procedures Act, and how complicated it is, and just sheer, like the sheer number of documents. Mm -hmm. Like, according to NPR, there's more than 1.1 million pages of non classified discovery thus far, nine months of camera footage, over 1,500 pages of classified discovery. Everybody needs to get security clearances. A lot of this stuff has to be read in a skiff. Like mm -hmm. this thing feel, and you have a motivated judge who probably has a lot of reasons to want to kick this. Yeah. Thing. I mean, ultimately we're dealing with Donald Trump, we, right? He, it's not like the guy has a lot of uh, moves uh, that he uses. It's not like mm -hmm. he's got a lot of moves in his arsenal. <laughs> and the one thing that he does without fail is he tries to delay everything. He tries to make excuses. He tries to put things off. Now in a vacuum, I would say this May date actually seems pretty solid. And I think it's something that the prosecution and I, I'm, I'm speaking about this, you know, just as a layman, as a non-lawyer, as someone who, you know, listens to the various lawyers on our network. But the May trial date actually seems like a pretty reasonable trial date that you, I, I don't think would knock any other judge for. You know, Judge Cannon, of course, comes with all this other baggage um, that you want to think uh, there's nefarious intent behind everything she does. I'm not so sure that's the case here. Um, I think when you had Jack Smith asking for December and when you had the Trump camp or not the Trump campaign, but Donald Trump himself and his, his team asking for a postponement until after the election, um, I think Jack Smith was kind of hoping that they would meet somewhere in the middle and do it sometime in the spring. Mm -hmm. And so I, I bet DOJ is actually pretty satisfied with this. And 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 you could kind of view it also by seeing like who are the angry people in Trump's camp at the decision. Like are they <laughs> do they seem happy or do they seem mad? And a lot of them seem very upset about this decision. Now the risk is, you know, is this a firm trial date or is this not a firm trial date? Um, and like I said before, Donald Trump will try to do as many things as possible to try to get this pushed. And then it's going to, the ball's going to be in Judge Cannon's hands. And that's when we'll really see what she's made of. Is she going to accept his excuses and push it back? Or is she going to let the trial um, go on as intended? She set a pretty rigorous schedule um, with a lot of deadlines for these lawyers to get the various clearances that they need for them to submit various filings. And so she actually seemed to be pretty thorough um, with this scheduling. Um, and now it's just a matter of kind of wait and see. It's going to be right in the heart of, uh, you know, kind of the election. Obviously, it's going to be in the heart of like the Republican National Convention, uh, the primaries and, and all of that. And, you know, Trump is going to try to use all of that to his advantage to push the trial. Um, but the fact is, you know, and, and this is obviously my opinion that Trump should be treated like any other defendant should be treated and running for president should not be a get out of jail free card because then any bank robber when he got arrested would go, hold up, I'm running for president. Uh, you got to you got to push my trial. I'm running. You got to. So, uh, you know, we'll, we we will see. But I, I don't think it's any reason just yet to anything to be nervous about just yet. I think it happens in May. And, and the reason and, and look, I. I think it, I agree. I think it makes sense that they had to push it that long. You got 1.1 million documents to go through. But I think it's going to be hard to push it further because at the end of the day, the documents are being produced by the defense. And so mm -hmm. it's not like the defense gets to say, hey, you haven't given us time, right, to, to go through these um, mm -hmm. because, like, they belong to the defendant or they don't. They actually belong to the United States. That's the issue. Um, mm -hmm. But they were provided, produced by the defendant. The other thing is, unless I mean, the only way it gets delayed, in my opinion, is if the judge, if Judge Cannon is is truly looking for reasons. But then it's got to be it's May or it's post November, right, of twenty four, because you're not going to delay it further into the election season and have any either side be happy about that. So I think uh, you're going to have the lawyers on the Trump side working very hard to find evidentiary issues about what can be submitted to a jury, what can be considered, and, you know, and trying to find controversy. The problem I think they're going to have is that the prosecution is going to be very motivated to move forward with the trial, which is unlike a lot of 
uh, you know, trials with defense, like oftentimes the, you know, the defendant might be in a hurry for a speedy trial here. They're not, but the prosecution, unless it's going to be something they think the case is going to hang on, they might concede to a lot of things that the defense wants in order to keep there from being sticking points. One, because they want to have the trial before he can potentially become president and, uh, and pardon himself. Um, but two, they've got like two or three other trials to get to, and they got to get through this one first. So the just, so the, Justice Department, I think, is going to be, or special counsel is going to be motivated for that reason. Yeah, and even one historical—I mean, there's no historical comp, but one one case that people are writing about as instructive is the Oliver North case, where there was a lot of classified information, and it was like the government had a lot they were trying to hide there. <laughs> so they basically they were dropping charges to try to speed that along and avoid uh, embarrassment, which is I don't think is going to happen here. But they, it is going to be tricky trying to navigate the introduction of some of this evidence in court, given that some of it is, by its very nature, extremely dangerous to national security. It'll be interesting to watch. Uh, I also think it's a big question to wonder, like, is it, are some of these other cases going to slip into the calendar? So, you know, now that given that there's a pretty wide gap in the calendar, does Bragg jump in? Does Georgia jump in? Does this D.C.? pending DC case that has fewer classified documents than you'd imagine, does that slip into the calendar, right? There's definitely room for something, you know? And Donald mm-hmm. Trump's calendar, legal calendar is already filling up. I've had yeah. some lawyers joke. <laughs> I, I, I've had some lawyers joke to me that Donald Trump is going to be in court more than they are in the next few months yeah. and, and over the next year. Like they have more court appointments. And you have like in October of this year of uh, the New York Attorney General civil fraud case. You have in January of 2024 uh, the other E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Uh, in January, you also have another class action fraud case against Trump. You have uh, the Stormy Daniels Manhattan case. In, in March of uh, 2024, uh, you have this case. Uh, Donald Trump is about to be indicted again by Jack Smith for uh, crimes relating to 2020 election interference and the actions surrounding January 6th. And that is imminent. That could come today, could come tomorrow, could come next week. Um, you know, that is right there um, out in front of us. We have Fawny Willis in Georgia, who is going to hit him with uh, racketeering charges, apparently. And so, uh, you know, not good times ahead for Donald Trump. He's going to be embroiled in uh, many legal battles. It's going to cost him a whole lot of money, a whole lot of time. He's going to be uh, spending a lot of his PAC money on, uh, on on these attorneys and and various legal teams. And it's all going to be right in the thick of these elections where the Republicans are likely going to nominate somebody who is standing uh, both <laughs> criminal and civil uh, trial um, for multiple crimes uh, spanning from uh, fraud to defamation to you name it to racketeering like they're they're really serious crimes and uh it's just going to keep coming well it's going to this oh sorry jason i i was just gonna say this would be a great year to relaunch court tv I mean, it's just like, yeah. I mean, it's I gonna be. It. We, wall got, we, got, to we wall. got the Midas Touch. We got the Midas Touch yeah, Network. You're, you're right. I'm sorry. Maybe Midas <laughs> Touch should just rebrand as Court TV, man. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's incredible, dude. Um, yeah, it's funny. I I know some of the people involved in Court TV, and they they live in some big ass houses. Uh, they made a lot of money off of that. The, mm-hmm. uh, the can I ask a question before we get into the next part? Is like I'm trying to remember the actual calendar, like of the elect, like. Iowa caucus is in January or February? I think January, yeah. I mean, like, they usually are, yeah. It more than likely, from a delegate perspective, he's the presumptive nominee by the time he stands sure. and hears the actual charges against him. For sure. May he had wrapped it up. Yeah, he had wrapped it up by then, uh, last time. So just to take you stock know, of where we are right prove. now. It just goes to prove. Wasn't it? It just goes to prove the old political advice that they always say which is like make sure to schedule your criminal trials after your party has chosen their nominee so that you can keep everyone's attention from the day the nominee is chosen until actual election day and focus it on you and your criminality i mean it's that that genius. That, 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 that old political adage i've, I've, I've yes <laughs> and all good all press is good press well okay let's take stock of this uh republican primary, which, you know, Brett, as you talked about, Trump, I mean, one thing he doesn't have to worry about right now is the other candidates in the field. He is crushing his opponents. 
if you look at the Iowa RCP average, he Trump is averaging 50, which is an ominous number. Um, DeSantis, 17. Scott, 7.7. Ramaswamy, 4.3, ahead of the rest of the pack. And, you know, you heard it here first, everybody. We, we flagged him back when he was a nobody, uh, when he was just grifting from pharmaceutical companies before you knew who he was. Now, the, <laughs> the, he had, it doesn't seem like he has a lot to worry about. DeSantis is dropping. DeSantis also just announced that he's cutting a third of his staff. Doesn't sound great for him. Now, the way they're positioning this, guys, is, hey, this is what McCain did, and he rescued his campaign. Now, I've got one piece of bad news for the DeSantis people is that Ron DeSantis is no John McCain. No, <laughs> it's no, like no. John McCain is the kind of guy that the more time voters spent with him, the more they liked him. And it was mm-hmm. in his nature to be a maverick. And he was just riding the bus with our buddy, Mike Murphy, just making havoc. Uh, but I don't, I just can't imagine that the more voters see of Ron DeSantis, the more they're going to like him. But maybe I'm going to live to regret these no, words because I was bullish on him before. He's Scott Walker and Tim Pawlenty. Like, I mean, he's, yeah. you know, John McCain. Yeah. In, right? in fact, I mean, the more people I, get to know him, the less they like him. And we've seen that. Like, DeSantis put a lot of resources and spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. The longer he was there, the worse his polls went. Right. Usually when you're meeting people, shaking <laughs> yeah. hands, doing like, your polls should right. experience some bump. They like cratered. And yep. you kept seeing these interactions with folks. And the guy was like an alien. Like the guy was like, it's like he never interacted with human beings in his entire life. Um, and he would like kind of half-ass shake their hand and then like, like rub snot on his hands and then like shake their hand. Or someone would be like, Mr. DeSantis. There was this funny, hilarious clip where someone was like, Mr. DeSantis, I drove out here two hours to see you. It's such, it's so nice to meet you. And he goes, Oh, nice to meet you. Cool. Okay, bye. <laughs> and just, oh like, my walked god! Away. And I was like, I was like, oh, the great. Those are those, are those great. Uh, that's that charisma that everyone's been talking about. But Unreal. have you yeah. have you all ever spent significant time around or in the presence of a politician who is not good at being a politician? Like who who is like, yeah. well, kind I, of I, uncomfortable. I, 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 yeah, but you have to own it. So a good example, and, and, and if you're listening, Carl, I apologize, but this is actually meant to be a compliment. But uh, this <laughs> is so Carl Dean, who is the mayor of Nashville, mm-hmm. is one of my favorite people ever. Like he he was an amazing yeah. mayor, but he was an atrocious retail politician. I mean, like an awkward nerdy guy. Uh, but he was really good at being mayor, and he owned it. Right, like he was, like it was part of his charm. That he was a bit of like a like an introvert as a as a mayor. Now he was a nerdy introvert, and that was his thing. I don't get the sense that DeSantis is self aware enough to have a thing, other than like he's kind of like kind of a jock, kind of a bully, uh, trying mm-hmm. to be a little. He's he's trying to play the technocrat here and there. He's doing Trump impressions. I I just don't think he's settled on an image. So what you're talking about, though, I want to be specific. So Carl Dean is an example of somebody, as you pointed out, who does not have a natural skill set for retail politics. But what makes Carl Dean still an effective politician is that he does not hold himself out to be comfortable at an event like that. He doesn't pretend he is. So what's what would make Carl Dean not good at this is if he were to be like, I'm great at all of yeah. this. And aren't I normal and relatable <laughs> yeah. and just like everyone else, right? And it, it takes you back now, somebody who, who is pretty good, obviously, at that kind of stuff. You know, Obama was as good as it gets at, at, at broadcast wholesale politics, but he admittedly, you know, was not as, he was not Bill Clinton when it came to retail politics. And there's that great story that Axe tells about them being downstate in Illinois and Obama, when he was running for Senate and Obama ordering Grey Poupon and Axe telling him, like, you can't order Grey Poupon, you know, and and Obama being like, look, man, my name is Barack Hussein Obama. Of all the reasons that these folks might choose not to vote for me, me liking Grey Poupon is pretty low on the list. So why don't I just, you know, he's basically like, I'm just going to be me. And that worked for him. But but. Now, inverse it. Imagine that Obama really loved Grey Poupon and A, two options here, didn't want anyone to know 
And it somehow became like known. He was out there pretending that he just eats, you know, hot dogs with regular mustard all the time. It turns out somebody figured out that would be a big mistake. They figured out it's great people. The other way to go, and this seems a little more Ron DeSantis-ish, is if he just assumed everybody loved Grey Poupon. And he yeah. went to like the, the you know, I don't know, name a state fair in Southern Illinois and was like, hey, how about some Grey Poupon? How much do we love Grey That's, I've been around politicians like that who don't know that they're awkward human beings. And you know what it is like? It's like Michael Scott running for office. Right. And, and that's funny to watch Scott. from afar, right? It's funny to watch from afar. But if you were to meet Michael Scott, you would not stay in the room long. It would you would be cringeworthy, well, right? I, I think yeah, your voters will forgive almost anything if you're honest with them about it. <clears throat> I think it's why Eric Adams does particularly well, why Bill Clinton survived as long mm -hmm. as he did, and and you know, not a very popular opinion, but why Trump continues to be as strong as he is in the Republican primary is because he's a dirtbag. And to his supporters, they like the kind of dirtbag that he is. And yeah, he'll lie about a lot of things, but the, the big capital T truth about who Trump is is not lost on anybody. Like his supporters, his haters, everybody. And I think Bill Clinton was particularly masterful at this, is that from the get-go, I, I was in elementary school when I knew Bill Clinton was sleeping with uh, women who weren't his wife. It was baked mm -hmm. into everybody's expectation of him, uh, and the voters when he did way, you know, he did things that, I, in my opinion, very much crossed the line, uh, and it's not only inappropriate but perhaps worse. People kind of baked that in, and they were like, "All right, like, yeah, there's some things here that I don't like, but it's not totally surprising." And he's winking at me. Uh, you know, well, the but hold on, the other thing Bill Clinton did that that works for Bill Clinton that Ron DeSantis is not doing is that. Because it's not like Bill Clinton was like, yeah, you know, I sleep around. Like, he denied all that, and that was really, I, you know, that is not what you would advise someone to do, right? But what Bill Clinton did is he made it very clear to people that he cared a lot more about their problems than he did about what people were saying about him. And I don't think anybody is getting a vibe from Ron DeSantis that he yeah. cares more about what's <laughs> going on with the average yeah. American than he does about how his campaign is going. And that's, I'll I say think, at the heart of his problem. Now, I'll, I'll say two things. First, I'm going to tie this to something that sounds completely unrelated, and I'm going to bring That's it back. That's what we to do here. And, I, and I'm going to bring it back to the beginning. I, I fit in. I see. I fit in. I fit in, you guys. Um, mm -hmm. The beginning, we were speaking about Barbie. And one of the things I said about Barbie was that it was incredibly self-reflexive. It knew what it was. It took shots at itself. Um, it, it mocked Mattel. It mocked the commercialization of Barbie. <laughs> like it, 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 it made itself a target. And that's what made you a. That's what made audiences, I think, be able to watch it and open up to it and enjoy it, despite knowing kind of the history of of Barbie and and understanding that this is a commercial product by a gigantic toy conglomerate. Uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, to your point, is not self-aware, is not self-reflexive, and there was a clip of him just the other day where a reporter went over to him and they asked him. They said, "Hey, Ron." Your campaign doesn't seem to be doing so well. Uh, Trump seems to be kicking your ass in the polls. He didn't use those words, the reporter, but uh, that was the gist of it. Um, wh what's your plan to win people back? And DeSantis turns to the reporter and he goes, just watch and see. And then he turns <laughs> around and he put his arm around like one of the people who was there to see him, gave the most forced, most uncomfortable looking, looking smile into the camera. And that to me epitomized everything wrong with this campaign. He also just, he doesn't know who he is and there's no why to his campaign. Like right. I still don't understand why he is running. Like he, he, he keeps defending Trump. You think Trump was the best, right? You're, you you want to say Trump is the best. So Trump is running also. So if you're saying this guy was the best, then what the hell are you doing there? Then you're going to take like these half-assed shots at Trump and you're going to try to awkwardly kind of run to the right of Trump on certain issues and kind of out Trump Trump and give these like meekish weird responses when asked about Trump's criminal trials. And it's like, he's, he's so wishy-washy. And meanwhile, you look at Florida and 
it's more than just an appearance, but he's rightfully been branded as somebody who does not care about the people and only cares about himself. When you see the actual issues that Floridians are going through with teacher shortages, with skyrocketing insurance rates, with the highest uh, inflation in the entire country. And then you see him gallivanting in New Hampshire, uh, telling a guy who drove out two hours to see him to F off, you know, there's, there's a disconnect between him and the actual needs of people that even goes beyond his just general kind of meanness and, and overall awkward demeanor. Well, he could run into trouble. If, if in you're going to answer. You know? Yeah. Well, hold on. Sorry. I just want to say yeah. if, if you're, if you're running for high office and you're going to answer a reporter's question with just watch and see, you have three options for what you do in the seconds that follow that see. statement. You can, you can hit a three-point shot on one attempt, you know. You can play the saxophone on late-night television. Uh, or, you know, you can order an ice cream cone and put on your aviators. Those are your three options. You can't just say, just watch and see, and then just walk away. You got to, like, do something cool, <laughs> which he cannot do. Right. Anyway, well, I, go ahead, Robbie. I think he, you know, he's term limited out, I, th I think, in Florida. So I think he can't run as governor again. But you, you start to think about what is Ron DeSantis' future after this. It would have to be tethered to Florida after this if he's not really able to resurrect his national identity. Now, he certainly wouldn't be serving in a Trump cabinet under these dynamics. So the, the question you ask yourself is, well, where does he go from here? And I think, like, he's, he is mismanaging Florida and taking his eye off of Florida in a very Bill de Blasio-esque way, like from the right, meaning like when, mm -hmm. as a New York City native, de Blasio was running for office right up to COVID uh, and was not working particularly hard to begin with then. And then was the, the campaign, his sort of quixotic campaign, became a representation of all of the lack of energy and thought he was giving to the city of New York. And I think this is potentially... What can happen to DeSantis? All those stats you're talking about, even his own botch, like his culture war stuff, which if there was one thing he seemed particularly invigorated by before he ran for president, it was all the culture war stuff. And, you know, his botch rollout of these history standards where he's letting pass standards that even right wing people are looking at and like, oh, that's a bridge too far to say that slavery uh, you know, helped slaves like build <laughs> skills that they otherwise wouldn't have. <laughs> you got to let some pitches go by, Ron. Some yeah. pitches just take the pitch, <laughs> you man. You you don't have two strikes on you necessarily. Let the pitch go. See another pitch. Go, yeah, yeah. That's the thing, Disney. right? It's all in his own making. Like, like right. he is literally. It's unforced error after unforced error after unforced error. I. It's really one of the most disastrous campaigns uh, from even before the launch that I have really that I could really ever remember. Um, and it's kind of only going to get worse. And then, li like literally, he goes. There was the big story in NBC: Ron DeSantis campaign, huge campaign reset. They are switching it up. And not a day later does Ron DeSantis go. I'm going to direct the state of Florida to investigate Bud Light. I know. I'm uh, and it's like this year reset. You're going to tell the state of Florida to investigate a corporation because they sent a few beers to to a transgender person. Like, like that's your reset because that seems to be you seem to be doubling down on all the issues. Then you had the staffer, uh, another staffer post another deranged video uh, following up on that LGBT anti LGBTQ video that we uh, you guys had talked about on the show. This time it featured a Nazi symbol within the video, and then he had to fire that staffer along with a third of his campaign. So if this is the reset, uh, th this thing seems pretty dead in the water to me. All right. Let me just say before we go to an ad, uh, the, the thing I want to talk about when we come back uh, from the ad, uh, so you have a moment to get your thoughts on it, is if you're one of these Republican presidential candidates that's going to be in this debate, clearly Trump is probably not going to be one of them. I feel like you have a few strategies to choose from going into this debate. And so I'm curious what you all, I, I know what mine would be. I'm, I'm, or I know what the options are. I'm curious what y'all think the options are for their strategies in a debate without the front runner. So mm -hmm. with that said, let's hear from a sponsor. So if you're anything like me, you often have a sense of anxiety that you're signing onto these contracts and you're not exactly sure what you're agreeing to. And it seems like just everything gets more expensive, including wireless service. Like I've seen my wireless bills every year go up pretty significantly. And that's until I tried Mint Mobile. So after years of getting ripped off, 
um, I've learned that there actually is an exception to the rule and it's Mint Mobile. They offer premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month. And when I heard this, I was like, what is the catch? Uh, and apparently there isn't one. Their secret sauce is that they're the first company to send sell wireless directly online only. So they cut out all the costs of the retail stores and they pass those savings directly onto you, the consumer. And I love that. I love seeing a company that makes things less expensive to make. And instead of pocketing the profit, they make things cheaper. That's what I love about Mint Mobile. And this is high quality wireless service. So it's not just cheap, but it really works. And to me, it actually works better than my previous provider. I won't name them because I don't want to disparage anybody. Uh, but it's remarkable. They're able to offer the same, if not better, service uh, for a lot less. So for anyone who hates their phone bill going up, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. They give you the best rate, whether you're buying for one person or for a family. Uh, and they have family lines starting at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you could use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with your existing contacts. So it's super seamless. So you could switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash majority. That's mintmobile.com slash majority. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com, mintmobile.com slash majority. All right. So Let's say you're one of these uh, Republican candidates for president and you're going into this debate where it certainly looks like the front runner is not going to show because why would they? They're the front runner and why show up and have everybody beat on you? Um, now, I think as far as I can tell, and tell me if I'm missing any, there are three potential ways to go if you're one of these candidates entering this debate as to your actual strategy. One is for all of them to try to get together and say, hey, we have this platform and I think we already know this is not going to happen, but is for them to say, we have this platform. This is our opportunity to band together as the other leaders in the Republican Party and just over and over, not attack each other, but make the case for why Donald Trump cannot be the nominee. Now, I think we all agree this would be the smartest thing for the Republicans to do, but I don't think they're going to do it because they're politicians and they're not going to, if history is any guide, they're not going to be able to get together to stop Trump. Second possible strategy, and this is the one that I think is the most likely for each of them to do, which is to try to stand out as best they can. Now, in some cases, that's going to mean being the one who attacks Trump. Like Chris Christie clearly is going to be the one more than anybody else who goes after Trump, and that's how he distinguishes himself. Now, others have the option of trying to do that as well. Chris Christie will be attacking maybe some of the others for not attacking Trump enough. Some of them will try and stand out by being a defender of Trump, which is an interesting strategy, but brings me to my third possible strategy, which is to go in assuming that everybody on the stage is probably going to make Trump mad at some point by not, you know, kowtowing to Trump. And so it could just be audition for vice president. And I, so I just I think, think it's going to be interesting to see who chooses what. I think there are going to be two winners from this debate. This is my prediction. Chris Christie, because okay. he is the clearest and the only person so far who's qualified who is all in on the anti-Trump message. And he's mm -hmm. actually a very, very effective debater. Like, he's, he's really good at yeah. this. He's, he has a lot of other issues, but he is very good at debate. Uh, mm -hmm. he, will, he will, without a doubt, excel at this. And he will go at everybody on that stage for being you know, cozy to Trump and talking out of both sides of their mouth, et cetera. Vivek will be the other winner because he has gone fully pro-Trump. He goes down to Miami, like when the indictment goes down, calls on everybody to uh, pardon Trump. Vivek is going to win the, like, I am just straight up pro-Trump. Uh, and I'm not just auditioning for vice president, but cabinet, whatever. And if anything were to happen to Trump in the middle of this race, I want all of Trump's people to know I'm with them. Because uh, well, everybody else on that stage- to be the biggest winner. Well, he also has the most to gain because yeah. most of the people watching will be like, who is this guy? So right. that's a good point. Continue, yeah. please. He's, he, he's not a very t 
tall person. So I think that may like just come across. I don't know what the theatrics will look like. I, I'm not even trying to be mean because I'm not a tall person either. But it's like the he's he'll have some optics issues. But I, I do think that he has the clearest pro-Trump position. Christie has the clearest anti-Trump position. The rest of them have tried to get it both ways and are going to sound weird on the stage, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be it's it's going to be a mess, uh, but it'll be entertaining. And I think it's honestly the ideal scenario for someone like Chris Christie. And I'm not saying it's going to help him in the polls, because I think people like us are going to right, enjoy yeah. Chris Christie's <laughs> performance at the debates, you yeah. know, and, and not so much uh, the folks in a Republican primary. Um, but I think Chris Christie, I think all these people basically are going to become sort of pseudo surrogates of Donald Trump at the end of the day. And they, but they don't have the gravitas of Trump to fight back. They don't have the kind of same Trump Trumpian ability to just shut people down with sheer force. And Chris Christie actually does have those qualities. And so the same way Chris Christie was ruthless to Marco Rubio in the 2016 debates. I think he could take that energy and he could turn that on all of these people who are who are going to just be kind of defending Donald Trump and saying why Donald Trump is so amazing. And yeah, they may throw in the occasional like, you know, we just need new blood. You know, which yeah, we just we're going to hear a lot of that fresh energy. You know, they're going to be all these comments on the periphery of like, you know, oh, you see what I'm saying? Kind of it's it's going to be ridiculous. But ultimately, you're going to have all these Trump surrogates on stage just trying to out Trump each other. Uh, no, you no, you're more anti-vax. No, I'm more anti-vaccine. No, yeah, I'm more anti-vaccine. The, the no, Biden I, crime family. Yeah, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. No, I hate American history more. Like they're they're just going to be out competing each other for these extreme positions. And then I think Christie though is going to be able to just actually focus and is going to pick these people off one by one during the debate. And there'll probably be a lot of booing and theatrics if you know they allow audience reactions, or maybe even if they don't, depending on how the debate is is scheduled. But but I think it's actually a good opportunity for Christie. And I agree with you and Vivek that j- just him, his presence there alone is is a big win for mm-hmm. him, for him who who most Americans just you know don't know and and he seems to be there I guess for the uh, perpetually online uh, Republicans who are disenchanted by DeSantis who who see this guy kind of spouting the some all in, things. He's, he's winning the all in podcast vote. Uh, but, that's yeah, his group. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Let's talk quickly about country music. I love country music. I, this caught my attention because there's actually a left-right split within country music. Uh, it's been brewing for some time. Finally. It really, it's always been so right-wing. There finally is a left-right split. But if you split, remember even remember the Dixie Chicks, though, like there, it, it's been there. It's been there. And the yeah, but, is, but the Dixie Chicks, just like at the time, they just fully lost that whole thing. See, the now thing is, there's an audience for them. I could go on a tangent of this, but I think whenever a, a country singer becomes left wing, we just call it folk music. It's a whole. I know that's discussion. what upsets me. I'm it's a country like, fan. I want them to like, stay a country musician. Like, like Brandy Carlisle, for example, to me is a country that's singer. So funny. But it's oh, like, yeah. but it's a whole separate discussion. I love country music. You know this, Jason, because we wrote mm-hmm. something about Nashville where I, I smuggled as much country knowledge as I could into a very s- small document. But the so Jason Aldean is this country singer who became famous for a song called Flyover States. And basically his brand has been, I'm about the small town. Now, parentheses, as he was coming to prominence over Flyover States, he allegedly was caught cheating on his wife in LA, uh, which we won't go into. Now, he, had, he came out with a video um, called Try That in a Small Town. And this video is... A political advertisement. Actually, it looks very similar to Trump's ad at the RNC, where basically Trump had all this footage of the protests, riots, or whatever you want to call them in 2020. And basically, the song is all about like, hey, you can't try that in a small town. Try to do it. And basically, it's about like attacking police and businesses and all this kind of stuff. And uh, there is definitely a like, you know, I would say that there is there there is a mixture of races, but there certainly feels seems to be a tilt. Uh, and so um, Jason Isbell, uh, another country singer, took a shot at Aldine, uh, and basically was like, you know, not only did you, you know, he basically said you didn't write this song. He says I dared Aldine to write this next single himself. That's how we do it in a small town. Uh, and Aldine went on TV. This is Aldine uh, in. Uh, on MSNBC talking about this controversy. Isabel talking about Aldine. Isabel, sorry. Well, I think in uh, in 
Jason Aldean's song, uh, you know, which which he didn't write. Other people wrote. Uh, uh, but I think that what it appears to me that's happening is is these sort of unfounded fears that small town Americans have. Um, it, it's being capitalized on. So, so you're drumming up this fear that, that there's going to be riots in the streets and people burning the flag and people carjacking and, and the knockout game. I don't know how the knockout game wound up in this song. This is very clearly a debunked racist myth that people just, you know, walk up and punch other people on the sidewalk. I don't know how this wound up in there, but, um, Pretty much all these things point to a very specific group of people um, as the perpetrator. And they say, you should be afraid of these people. And let, let me sell you something while you're afraid of these people. The way I see it, uh, most of the issues in, in my small town in Alabama, Green Hill, Alabama, Florence, Muscle Shoals, that area, uh, most of the issues there are are based around addiction, you know, opioid addiction, painkiller addiction, people not able to get a great education uh, or keep a job. Um, and, and you know, I write about those things. When I write about a small town, I write about people who are um, uh, addicted and trying to dig their way out, you know, or people who are trying to take care of their family and have some pride in themselves. Because I'm not trying to sell somebody a, uh, a product. I'm trying to make something that is art and something that is creative. Mm-hmm. You know what the best thing about this whole deal is? Is that more people are going to listen to Jason Isbell's music. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that, that dude is, it's like between him and Lin-Manuel Miranda for the best lyricist working at the moment. Uh, not mm-hmm. just, like, just his stuff is so great. And uh, anyway, that's just my... Yeah, no, I, I'm a huge fan. I saw him so in London recently, and uh, he's got a huge uh, following there, and I saw him in New York the year before that. And uh, he did a really interesting pandemic concert that was like a, a big moment. But I think what he's saying is fascinating because he's it, it gives us an alternative story. And a lot of Majority 54 listeners are from small towns. And he talked about the opioid epidemic and basically saying, look, like instead of inventing problems, let's talk about the one right on our doorstep. And on this very day, the Wall Street Journal dropped a story about an hour ago about how a hedge fund is basically pushing. Uh, one of the drug makers who had to settle in the opioid epidemic to cut off $1 billion that they had settled on. So essentially declare bankruptcy and not pay a billion dollars to families in small towns. Now that should be in that song. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we could all agree on that. Yeah. I don't know why we need to be fighting about this. Like, like it's not, instead of inventing problems, the things that are in this video, that footage is from outside of my door. Like that's a, mm-hmm. that's a debate we have in New York City, right? And we can have a whole debate. We've talked about it on this podcast about what's real and what's not. And there's actually a really interesting debate about what happened in 2020 that's been playing out ever since in a lot of cities. It's in part why we have Eric Adams as mayor of New York City. It played out in the mayoral election. It continues to play out every single day in the city council and in every election since. But that is not the issue facing small town Alabama or small town anywhere else for that matter. And it's totally disingenuous. Yeah. yeah, I uh, I think the reason this be, I think really the contributing factor that made this especially controversial, like all there's all the stuff that y'all have talked about, but I think what really got it into the news is his reference to the idea of like you think you're going to take our gun, try that, in a, basically implying that if you were to try and implement any sort of gun safety measure in a small town, you would get shot. And Jason Aldean, for those who don't remember, was the artist who was on stage at the time. The, the Vegas shooting, the largest, the biggest mass right. shooting in, in, in the history of the country occurred. And I think Shannon Watts, uh, frequent guest on this show and the founder of Moms Demand Action is the one who pointed this out initially. And like, it's just, I mean, it's just all gross. Mm-hmm. And, and for show. It's definitely for show. And he also like, you know, Aldean also is, is from... Uh, you know, a city with uh, 150,000 people. Like he's not even like really from a small town himself. A lot of the footage in the video um, was actually from Europe, even though he claimed all the footage was footage from America. And, you know, he's clearly crafting this narrative. It's clearly aimed at kind of division and, and dividing people. Um, at, at the same time, you know, it's, it, it's hard for me to want to be like up in arms at, at, at every single cultural yeah. thing that, 
happens yeah. in society. You know, to 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 your point, like there are things that people are suffering from in these small towns, and I think we should always bring the focus, you know, back to that when we're when we're talking about it, whether it's uh, you know the opioid crisis or whether it's inflation hurting people's pockets. You know, there there are things that people are going through um, in in small towns and all over America um, that I think our attention is better served, uh, you know, focused on rather than Jason Aldean, uh, you know, in general. But he's certainly, you know, riding this wave and he's taken the same, you know, th- there's a space now for people who just kind of refuse to apologize and go all in on something. Yeah. And they take that criticism I, I, and that quote, you unquote, know, the cancellation of Sorry, yeah, I was going to say they take that I- idea of, oh, look, I'm being canceled and they ride it to the top of the music charts or they ride mm-hmm. it to sold out shows. They ride it to selling merch or getting donations. It's just it's it's just a typical kind of grievance right wing play that we just see time and time and time and time again. And I think folks know at this point, oh, if I go all in on all this right wing stuff, there'll be an audience who will defend me, who will send me their money, who will buy tickets to my shows. But I just need to be 100 mm-hmm. percent on apologetically that way the the irony is in my opinion is of of like this positioning of country music as this like right wing let's be honest like somewhat white nationalistic uh you know sort of position is like i've always loved country music for the same reason i love hip-hop which is they both are the are the two forms of music that i find most likely to tell great stories and so what's interesting is so often the best stuff on I in either genre are stories about struggle and often poverty because that because they're experienced so often in in very urban areas and in and in very rural areas and uh I don't know man I just I I think at the end of the day Aldine is like a pretty decent musician but I think Isbell's point is that Brett the reason he chooses to pick to double down on a single audience is because he's not that good like if you're yeah. like I'm good but I'm not that good, you're like I'm going to shore up one whole group because I don't have that much crossover. And yeah. you know, and anyway, but What's fascinating is it, who looms large over all of this discussion is Taylor Swift, who came out as a country singer but is obviously so yeah. much more than that. And she doesn't hide her politics at all, which is really fascinating and has mm-hmm. suffered no consequences for it. Like And she's so good that it doesn't matter, yeah. right? She and, could do anything. And 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 like I think, uh, well, yeah, because nobody is going to be like, you know, it's the joke that people make about the difference between R. Kelly and Michael Jackson, where they're like, right. you know, people are, they, <laughs> yeah. they have both have the same allegations. People are quicker to throw out one than the other because one had more songs that people yeah. don't want to part with, right? Like with yeah. Taylor Swift, you, plenty of people are going to disagree with her politics, but they're like, I, man, I just really like blank space. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to create a blank space in my memory for this idea and not do it. By the way, sidebar, I, we went to a Brandy Carlisle concert once where she, she was the opener for, they were just trading off on the road for Jason Isbell. Oh, really? And we love both of them. And Diana, we had my in-laws watching the kids and Diana was like, we've got to go home. Cause my, and so we watched the Brandy Carlisle, Carlisle part, but not the Jason Isbell part. And we saw like two songs, and so Diana openly admits that she owes me one Jason Isbell concert, and I really need. Well, to we go should to go. One. So anyway, yeah, we should go. Yeah. Um, oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Well, uh, so uh, this is. I'm so happy we got our country music in. Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, one for us. What's one happening out there, guys? Oh, we go. Well, oh, yes. even before one for us, oh, I want to. Yeah. I want to throw in one more thing because I know we're a little over time, but it's perfect for this show, um, which is what the positive thing I wanted to end on, which is uh, there. are Two governors, current governors, one a Democrat, one a Republican, who have actually been guests on this show before, each of them, uh, both friends of ours. One, uh, the, the Democratic governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, and the other, the Republican governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, who came together as part of, a, I think, a National Governors Association uh, like public service announcement, basically, and did this little video that we want to share about the concept of being able to disagree without hating each other. And I know that it's a little maybe corny and maybe a little, I don't know, idealistic, but it's also like perfectly on brand for what we're trying to get across to people on this show, which is not centrism. It's just having conversations without as much invective. Uh, We hope we're helping our listeners to do. And so because it is these two people talking about what we usually are pushing people to do, and it's two people who are friends of ours and have been on this show, 
we wanted to play this uh, for you real quick. I'm Spencer Cox, Republican governor of Utah. And I'm Jared Polis, Democratic governor of Colorado. And we're here to help save your family dinners. You know what we're talking about. You're halfway through your second helping of mashed potatoes when your MAGA uncle decides to share his thoughts on the latest election conspiracy. We all have that uncle. Or instead of passing the salt, your woke niece passes along a particularly controversial fact that she read on social media. Or maybe you're the one with the strong opinions. You know you're right. And the other side is a bunch of misguided weirdos. But there's a healthy way to deal with conflicting opinions. Actually, it's okay to disagree. It's not just okay, it's crucial. Did you just disagree with me about disagreeing? Healthy disagreement means not assuming that the other side is deluded, misinformed, or actively trying to overthrow America. A little respect and curiosity keeps resentment off the dinner table. And out of your social media feeds. Our nation was founded by people who profoundly disagreed. So next time your uncle your niece or anyone else brings up that one topic that just drives you nuts, take a deep breath. Be curious. Ask questions. If you still disagree, that's okay. But you might find that you aren't as far apart as you think. Conflict isn't bad. It's the way we disagree that matters. Please join us in showing America the right kind of conflict. Together, we can disagree better. Yeah, it's it's wonderfully cringe, I would say. Uh, this, <laughs> it's, it, it is. It's it's two politicians talk. It's it's meant to be cringe, but it has some messages it's, in there it's that so we dorky. push. It's so on Brandon. Dorky, oh, it is. It is. Them. But isn't I, it lovely? I have look. I I I've never said a bad word about Jared Polis. I never will. I uh, love the man. Obviously, I've got a lot of respect for Spencer Cox too. He's I routinely mentioned was my favorite Republican in the country. That. Yeah, they're they're totally nerdy and dorks and super cringy and very well intentioned, and I to, love the message. To the point of our earlier conversation, that's what those two dudes are like in real life. They're yeah, I, pretty big nerds. I almost mentioned Polis <laughs> when I was going to mention Carl Dean, although I, I he's a way better retail politician than Carl Dean. Right. That, you're, that's you're gonna have, you're gonna have a lot of people mad at you at the end of this episode, Ravi. No, Carl, no, they are, Carl but, ain't gonna get mad at me over that. <laughs> But they are two guys who are pretty big nerds, but are like, they embrace it and it kind of works there. And what I liked about it was they were making the point that we consistently make, which is not, you have to agree with people who say terrible things, but it is be curious, ask questions before you start, like try and figure out why they think that and you'll get a lot further. I thought that was really cool. All right. With that said, uh, you know, we can do one for us. Brett, this is your first time on here, not as a producer, but on air. You know, well, he watched two the, movies. The know what know this is so exciting. Yeah, I think yeah. I think I, I I gave the whole breakdown on my whole weekend. That's really all I did, though. That's but true. Uh, right. but it was right, fun. Robert, you, you, you 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 guys know me. I I I work on Midas stuff twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, so it was true. a delight to get out of the house and mm. see a couple movies. It was it was a nice change of pace. Robbie, what, what were you up to? Well, I went out to where, LA. For, where, to, where in the world are you now? Here, well, I did LA every time I see it. I did LA, which was wonderful. I did downtown LA Arts District, which was really cool, and kind of bounced around a little bit. I love it there. Uh, it was hot, but I, you know, I'm Indian. I like the heat. It was great. I came, I came back here, and I'm heading up to Hudson and Sagardi's areas. I know you know Jason really well. I'm doing tennis camp this weekend because uh, I'm in this bet with a buddy of mine, Mickey, who uh, whoever we're playing tennis uh, the weekend after Labor Day, and whoever loses has to get a tattoo on their butt. Uh, and I and, and you don't have tattoo. any tattoos. I have no tattoos, and so I'm taking my training very seriously. Yeah. So as well you should. Yeah. Um you know, the the only big life update I have is that I got a thing that is not COVID because I tested a week ago and I have just been fighting it and fighting it and that's it. It's just a pretty standard, like I've been sick and it's really annoying. Uh and I'm just You've had it for a while. I think you had it as of the recording last week too. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the hard part is like I know that I'm over I'm in that stage of it that I, I know I'm over being sick i just have the residual like cough that comes with it. it's like a dry cough which is terrible in this post-pandemic world if i go literally anywhere and i'm trying to talk and i cough you know like i've po- i've tried to mute myself often but i've been coughing a lot during this people look at you like you just opened sardines on a plane which i've done once so i know what that looks like oh and it's like people are because they think i'm just super sick and going and coughing on everybody and the truth is I'm just having trouble. I don't have much wind right now. But anyway, 
that's you know what was me is aren't things terribly difficult not really uh all right <laughs> this was super fun thank you everybody for listening hey uh this is our first time having brett on the air Feel free to give him a review. I mean, why not? You know, the guy could probably... Uh, who doesn't like people giving Hit that feedback? like button. Hit that like button yeah. on YouTube. Who, 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 doesn't like people, on who doesn't like people judging them and giving them a five-star rating? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I like what you did there. All right. Uh, so remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54. Please leave a five-star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.